Welcome to Crashing Game Night. My name is Matt Diorio. On tonight's episode, Paul Roshinsky from Slightly Mad Studios crashes Game Night. I welcome in my co-host, as always, Gerard Brewer, as well as our sidekick, Theo Walski. How's everyone doing tonight? Hello, all my fellow nerds, and thank you for joining us. Uh, doing very well. Enjoying the weekend. You're enjoying some sunlight at the moment. Whereas uh, I think our, our, our guest, Paul, is a little bit on the darker side right now. <laughs> yeah. it's getting rather late but it's a pleasure to be here with you guys and uh hello to everyone who's uh who's on the podcast who's listening to <laughs> yeah, thank you so absolutely. much for joining us to uh, give uh everybody a background with uh paul he was the director of motorstorm rc also directed drive club and onrush um start things off we had the news this week that the uh vita is finally discontinued um, completely in all regions now after uh, Sony removed the last two SKUs from Japan. Um, how do you guys all feel about the Vita being discontinued as well as the news with the new PlayStation 4 update that we get remote play on iOS devices? Uh, kind of start with Paul. How do you how do you think about that? Oh, it's it's <laughs> it's, it's a piece of news where I was there very early on in the, um, with Sony and we knew about the Vita way before it was announced and we were talking about the hardware, the features and, you know, how we were going to build a game for launch day and everything. So it's, it's kind of bittersweet. You know, it's one of those consoles that I, I love, I cherish. I've spent hundreds of hours playing so many games on it and it's, it's, it's time though. You know, it's the sort of thing where there aren't enough games coming out for it. The switch is now dominating that kind of that handheld sector right now. And, um, sad to see it's gold, but it's, it's, sure. it's time. Fortunately. Theo, Jerry, how do you guys feel about that? I, I absolutely agree that it's it's come to a point where the Vita just wasn't <clears throat> keeping up with the times. But uh, I, I, I am a little disappointed to see it go. I, I no offense to Nintendo, they make some good handhelds. But I mean, like I'd really like to see some variety between Nintendo handhelds versus mobile phone stuff. And it, it was just such a good experience with the Vita. I, I remember getting the Vita the day after it came out, and uh, having and once it stopped having the games that were being produced that I liked. Uh, sadly, I had to uh, give it over to Matt for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love the Vita. I totally I agree. Classic I, PlayStation I, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think it's it's definitely one of those you know subjects, one of those. Uh, handhelds that would has a legacy and it was it, i i always felt that it was a, a bit ahead of its time when it when sony put it out um yeah it's unfortunate but like everyone said it's we got to go with the times and it's there's no use for it really so, you say that but i have been playing it lately that's the crazy thing <laughs> it's, still, it's still a decent software catalog and you know yeah. with everyone's backlogs nowadays everyone's got mm-hmm. dozens of games yet to play in every piece of hardware I still go back to it every now and again. You know, it's not like it's an everyday device, but it's it's still one of those devices that I enjoy playing, and uh, you know, I still will go back to it. I think over the next year or two. What's your you favorite go. game? Do you, on th- the, do you think on the you're? Vita? Go ahead, Jerry. Sorry. Oh, I was asking, what's your favorite game on the Vita? Is that you've been oh. playing? Oh wow! It, it's it's one of the things that you can never say your own game were. You know, Motorstorm <laughs> RC is is one of my favorite <laughs> games on the Vita. It was just one of those kind of. Perfect pick up and play games for me, but uh, most recently I played Undertale on on the Vita, and uh, just just literally, just literally oh, wow. okay. that. yeah, that kind of blew me away. Actually, <laughs> that was a very surprising game. 
Um, so yeah, that's one of my most recent favorites. Um, Do you think you're gonna you're gonna keep your Rita for for a while, or are you? Yeah, I'm definitely gonna keep it around. Uh, I, yes. You know, there's at least a dozen games I still got unplayed sat on the Vita, and the screen's still gorgeous. It's still comfortable to hold, and yeah, I feel I'm like it, yeah, it still holds up. Like it's still a great device, and uh, I have plenty of friends who uh, who mod it and love who really aren't gonna get rid of it. Like they don't really care that it's being discontinued. Um. Because a lot of people are like modding it and kind of getting their own games and and stuff like that, so I still think there's going to be a kind of an underground use for it. Yeah, and if anything, it's one of those things I I find it way more portable than the Nintendo Switch. It's great to take around yeah. if you've got a big bag or something to take with you. But if you want to just put something in your pocket, the Vita is actually a better handheld. Oh True. yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I find it it's more comfortable to hold for longer mm-hmm. gaming sessions than the Switch. Yeah, because it fit, it fits in your palm just right. Because and then you don't you're not overextending your fingers, and it's just like you could effortlessly hold it. Yeah, and if you still got that original Vita unit with with the OLED screen as well, it's it's gorgeous. It's it still yeah. looks great. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, Paul, do you plan on making any use of the new uh, iOS remote play that they well, added I'm, to PS4? I'm Android only, so oh. uh, unfortunately. Oh, not. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've been making use of um, I guess the the that functionality on Android for a while. Although it's one of those things where when it first came out, I used it a little bit, but I don't know. I, I've never really found a practical use for it really on a day to day basis. So I've never really used it much. So since you're Android, did you upgrade to the Galaxy S10? No, I'm actually on a kind of mid range sort of phone. I'm not the sort of person who goes out and buys the the kind of high spec sort of phone, even though I use it a hell of a lot. I kind of buy some in mid range. So I'm actually on a Nokia. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, they've, they've kind of come back. You know, I'm on a 7 Plus. It's a good device. And it's what I'm talking to you on right now. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Sound great on it. Yeah, absolutely. So, Paul, what games did you grow up on? Oh, well, it depends how far you want to go back because. You know, I started gaming up at the age of five. My dad got me uh, an Amstrad CPC 464, which is a very popular um, PC or I guess a piece of hardware back in the, back in the UK in the, in the 80s. And I was on um, Harrier Attack, um, Dizzy, um, Rick Dangerous, and all these sort of like really old retro 80s games. But um, I think I kind of came into my own with gaming around the kind of early 90s with the, the Mega Drive. Uh, and then moving on to the PlayStation. So um, I always had a fondness of racing games, for sure, and every, every platform I've ever played. Um, but I guess uh, the games that kind of defined me, I guess when I got the PlayStation, it was it was Wipeout. When it was N64, it was it was GoldenEye. Oh, uh, yeah. That was my, that was my, oh. Yeah. That was, I think that was everybody's game when the 64 the magic words. Yeah. 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 And then when it was the Xbox, it was, it was Halo. I even... I was kind of a bit, a bit crazy with Halo a little bit because I had two Xboxes. I had a LAN setup, so we had eight people around my house in different rooms mm-hmm. playing. Oh. Like, this was before Xbox Live. Oh, that's a game night. Online. Yeah, that yeah. was the old LAN parties. I mean, we used to. I used to have friends that used to do that too, and we used to go uh, four Xboxes, four people per. Wow. <laughs> go to the big sixteen on. You know, those were fun nights. Um, so you mentioned that you you've always you know, gravitate towards the racing games and, and whatnot. So what is your favorite racing game 
in totality. It doesn't matter if it's your own game, something current in the past, but what is your favorite racing game? Oh, that's, uh, I should have really thought about this question before coming on this podcast. I should have known. (laughs) Paul, you should know I was going to ask you that question because I asked you about Forza versus Drive Club on Twitter. (laughs) The best answers are not uh, rehearsed. Come on now. Yeah, <laughs> it 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 changes so much depending on my mood. I mean, it's one of those things that I mentioned Wipeout before. You know, Wipeout was one of those games when I picked up the PlayStation, PlayStation where that defined the generation for me. That kind of that blew my mind. You know, seeing those sort of three D graphics, that combination of visuals and audio experience, and just it a completely different sort of gameplay. You know, to a typical racer as well. And it's one of those games where I think it was the only PlayStation game I had at launch, and I played it until I completely finished that game. You know, even on Piranha difficulty, this had to be. Oh, that's impressive. Oh, yeah. Geez. Wipeout yeah. is not an easy game. <laughs> no. I mean, racing games just used to be a lot harder in general. I'm thinking back to another mm-hmm. racing game I loved, um, F-Zero X on the N64. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, want, I want to see F-Zero come back. Where's, where's I, my next F-Zero? I would, be, I would be right there in that camp right with you, Paul, because I can remember getting the Super Nintendo first christmas it was out and it was super mario world uh sim city and f-zero mm-hmm. and i would just I play pretty, yeah. f-zero and we would actually my friends and i would challenge each other we would go basically go to dead last place and see if we could come back <laughs> um and definitely x was amazing and just the evolution i think we're i think we're due um yeah do I mean, Nintendo, they've got to be working on something like that for the Switch, surely. They have to. Um, We know that they're working um, on Metroid Prime 4, which unfortunately, you know, you know how development cycles are, especially, you know, with you being a game director and them resetting back to, you know, starting from scratch. Um, At least they went, you know, I'm I'm happy, though, that at least they're going with Rare. Or not Rare, but Retro, rather. Retro, Um, Yep, retro games, the the creators of the the trilogy. So, um, so what got you into the industry? Uh, passion, I guess, more than anything else. It was um, a situation in my life where I was at university. I was actually doing a, a degree in computation at the time, so I like programming and all sort of stuff. And okay. I actually saw a, a games course, just called a video games course in um, in Salford. And it was a Bachelor of Science at a university and a video games degree. And I was like, this wow. is the first time I've ever seen anything like this. And my, my, you know, my passion, it was video games. So I dropped out of university, quit that course, signed up and enrolled. <laughs> the, <for> the, <laughs> and that was it. I, I got my got my degree. I then went out, you know, and sent my CV to absolutely everybody. Um, I got my first gig in QA uh, with Coldmasters. That was back working on my first game, which was a racing game. And that was IndyCar Racing 2005, 2004, 2005, I think. And um, yeah, and then from there, it's just been racing game after racing game, pretty much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, how did it feel going from Codemasters as QA to moving into game design with Evolution? Yeah, that was that was that was a fantastic opportunity. That was one of those. Uh, lucky, lucky moments were uh, the people I used to work with at Coldmasters. They they left and they gave me a, like a recommendation over at Evolution Studios. And mm. the moment I heard them, you know, they were looking for a designer. I, you know, I snapped that up straight away because I was a big fan of 
uh, WRC rallying as a whole, you know, the Colin McRae series. I mm-hmm. used to cherish the PlayStation. Um, so, you know, I wanted to go and work in WRC. So WRC 5 Rally Evolved was my, you know, first design gig. And that was a, just a fantastic opportunity because there was only two designers on the project. So I got a real insight into oh, wow. what was on day-to-day sort of basis and, a, you know, a real big input into the game because... I was thrown into into doing all the handling for it as well, which was crazy because I'd, I'd never done any of that stuff. So there's a real uh, amount of faith put in me. So I was, I was you know, I was um, very well lucky, really, in many ways, to be given such a fantastic hands-on opportunity to kind of get my teeth into that game. Yeah, you know, especially when it was so established. Yeah, you, you always got to really appreciate those companies that like really uh, like develop the employees. Like they really take favor in their employees and help them achieve what they want to achieve. And that's, that's great to hear. Yeah. That was the thing about evolution. They were such a kind of, it felt like a family in terms of the studio, you know, everyone was there to help one another. Um, you know, there were, there were difficult times, but everyone supported each other all the time. And, um, you know, most of us, you know, over the, you know, over the years, it was like 10 to 15 years people have been working there. So, you know, we built all these really strong relationships and it was a, a privilege to, you know, have worked with so many talented people for so long, you know, evolution. And it's, you know, it's a shame obviously how, you know, how things went down, but you know, nothing as you see in the games industry stays same for too long. No, especially with a lot of those studios get snapped up. I mean, Bioware went from, their own thing to being under Activision or not Activision, but under uh, EA um, Bungie got moved under Activision. Now they're back on their own thing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's difficult because the thing is, if you want to be, you know, ambitious and grow your team and, and do something that's going to be on the bleeding edge, you know, you need that kind of big investment. You need that support because making a good game nowadays is, is, you know, it's expensive. It's not just, you know, a few million, you know, it's tens of millions, you know, if not, you know, a hundred plus million. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So how was it for you guys moving from the PS2 from a design perspective to the PS3? Because, you know, a lot of studios have come out and said that it was really hard to program for the PS3 in its infancy. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, that was a crazy period because when I started at Evolution, you know, we were working on PlayStation 2. The guys have been, you know, working on the PlayStation 2 hard for many, many a year, and they knew it inside out. And it was a, you know, it wasn't straightforward, but it was, you know, it's well understood, well established, and they could really push that hardware. And then when the PlayStation 3 came around, wow, I mean, that was, that was a difficult time. I mean, it was one of those things where, as a designer, it, it kind of felt like I was crippled for such a long time because. The guys were kind of just, you know, learning this very complicated hardware. And there was very little like, I could do other than write documents, spreadsheets, and all those boring sort of things. And it was only really, you know, in the final 12 months of development where I actually got like hands on to really kind of tune and, you know, get the feel of the game right. Because that, you know, most on one, that really came together only in the last six months before launch. It was, you know, the most insane development period. Oh, wow. It was one of the most, it was one of the most fun moments in my life because we would, you know, trying to make a game which was unique something different something something ambitious you know on new hardware but it was it was absolutely crazy you know it's one of those things where you know no plans uh, actually you know <laughs> um kind of came to fruition everything was kind of um done on, on a day-to-day basis because you couldn't really predict what was going to happen it was um one of those moments where you know it was kind of each other's um and 
if you speak to any of the guys who you know worked in that game, I think they'll you know say it was the most insane period of game development you know will have ever been in, and that's just because you know we no one really had a clue what what to do with their hardware, and I don't think anyone really in the studio knew how to get the most of it until the final few months, you know, just before it was kind of coming out. That sounds about in line with about everybody else I was saying, you know, especially yeah. with like Naughty Dog and stuff with uh, the PS3. So with the advent of PS4, you started off with being the design director on Drive Club and then moved into that game director aspect. Um, how did you feel going from design director to game director kind of midstream? Yeah, I mean, midstream definitely made the, the role a little bit harder because you've had, you know, say, for example, a previous director who has a vision and then you want to come in and you want to lay down your own vision and you want to say, look, no, this is what I want from this game. So you obviously have that kind of that friction and that transition you need to make at that point, and that makes it more challenging. Um, and uh, I guess the other thing as well, it's a very different sort of role. You, I always pictured, you know, director as, you'd be, you'd be hands-on, you'd be doing, you'd still be mucking in and doing a lot of the work. But in fact, it's, 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 it's a role where you're actually, you're talking to everybody every day. You're not actually, you know, you're not writing a line of code. You're not getting in there and tweaking numbers. Uh, all delegation. Just, yeah, it yeah. all is. And that's yeah. the weirdest. And that's the hardest thing that I've found about being a game director is that you've got to trust your team. You know, you've got to give them the direction, tell them what you want and let them do it because you know you bring the people onto your team that that have the talent have the know-how and you just got to let them get on with it um because <clears throat> you, you know it's one of those things you can be too precious or be too hands-on and you just interfere with the process so uh, every now and again you know you got to course correct or you know just push people in the right direction but on the whole you know it's just um, making sure that everyone's pulling together as a team more than anything else so i gotta ask you as a game director did you get to drive some of the cars uh, um, not as not as often as you'd think, but um, yeah, there was there was a fantastic um, few opportunities during Drive Club in particular where we did get to go out and drive some awesome cars. I'm um, just good awesome. that a lot of the footage uh, from those days has never been released. I would love for for someone to get those pictures, those videos, and put them online at some point. Cause oh, that'd be great! Or like a special features for one of the next games, like like a behind the scenes kind of feature. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those sort of things were. I think we had plans to do that sort of stuff because we did, like, we did um, a full like sort of um, series of um, track days or so like Silverstone and other tracks around the UK, Anglesey, for example. We did day trips around um, Wales um, in in like a, a Ferrari four five eight. And oh out, man, um, that must have been beautiful. Jesus. Yeah, BAC Mono, Gallardo. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like a, you know, six or seven, you know, you know, supercars all driving around and getting a feel for what these beasts are like on the road and then on the track as well. So, yeah, that was some awesome field research there. That's awesome. <laughs> some special, special days. There. Yeah, because it's one of those things, you know, to own one of those cars is, I think, beyond <laughs> most people <laughs> working in the industry, unless you're a, a big exec or something. So yeah. to get the opportunity to go in these cars was amazing. And, you know, not just for... 10 20 minute thrill ride but you know it, we got a good few days in these cars and got a good you know real feel for <clears throat> um for these cars and you know it, it's so disappointing to have to come back to reality and drive a normal car you know <laughs> <laughs> which one was your favorite to uh to drive i think well the most unique one for me was the bac mono that was insane because you've got this 
small single seater open wheel uh, racing car essentially, which is road legal. Either we we with your lid on and everything, so you feel like a proper race driver on the road. Oh, cool. The only oh, problem wow. is visibility. Visibility is not good. The oh, really? We were, driving, we were driving late at night in some pretty hurry conditions at times, and you know those headlights weren't fantastic, and uh, <laughs> your visor kind of fogging up, and it's yeah, it, it's a bit scary at times. But I think of the other cars that I drove. Probably the Ferrari 458 was my favorite, <clears throat> just because it's, I don't know, it's, it's a Ferrari, you know, those cars are, oh, yeah. and the, the sound, that the notes that it gives when you put your foot down on that throttle is, is pretty <laughs> special. You know, I, Spe- I did it, speaking I, of the I, sounds of the cars, uh, did you guys uh, record, like, record the, the sounds of the engines and, like, the sounds of, like, what the cars did at a certain, like, RPM or certain speeds? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, we had a b- bunch of guys, um, Tim Shepard and Alan McDermott in particular, two fantastic audio guys, one of which is actually now over with me at Slightly Mad Studios working uh, audio for uh, some future games that I can't talk about. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> uh, back in Drive Club, uh, remember, Tim was probably one of the luckiest men in terms of he got to go out and I think the majority of cars in Drive Club all had the same treatment where we got them down on some sort of you know, runway or track, and we we absolutely hammered every single one of them. So you you mic them all up. I think eighteen different mics, internal, external. Oh, that's have, cool! Oh, wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, Tim, I don't think really got to drive many of them. Um, but you have like a professional <laughs> driver generally driving them, and you know, pushing them to limits. So you know, through every gear, every sweep, every rev range, um, and you know, making sure that you kind of capture the essence of each of the cars and. Uh, it was a lengthy and costly process, but it was it was well worth it. Oh, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, the sounds oh, yeah. both in the cockpit of the cars as well as outside of it are they're so distinct from car to car. You know, from the Lotuses to the Nissans to the Ferraris and McLarens. That's ultimately what I feel like makes the game is like every car is an experience, and you can just tell by the sign the the sounds being so tight, like. Yeah, I think this is what it would sound like. And it was very evident early on because, like, I remember with the repeated visits to the uh, drive club booth at E3, like, especially I'll, I'll test to, to Matt and Jerry, like, <laughs> pinpointing the the details that were in even at, at, at Alpha for everything was just on point. Yeah. It's the same for the, the, for the visuals for the vehicles as well. We had a, a vehicle team. I think we had about, I can't remember now, six, maybe seven or eight guys working on those vehicles. And they did an exceptional job. I mean, Stu Walls, Andy Bolt, uh, Dave Griffiths, uh, fantastic team of guys. And they were obsessive about detail. Um, you know, it's the sort of thing where every little thing was scrutinized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was every now and again where we had to go, come on, guys, that's just that's just too much because it's like (laughs) (laughs) you you can build that detail, but no one's going to see it. And obviously, when you're working with, you know, fixed hardware and you want to try and make things look as good as possible, you have to cut corners to make sure it runs at the right frame rate and resolution and all this sort of thing. So, you know, they they they, you know, within the remit that they had, the, the budget that they were given, they did everything they could to make every car, you know, as stunningly detailed as possible. I appreciate them being OCD yeah. about it because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as you've seen in some of the videos and stuff I've been posting for it too lately, um, it's just the amount of detail, the way the the light reflects off of the dashboards, 
um, the way it reflects off the cars when they're wet, off the roads when the sun is hitting the wet roads. It just all that detail is it's appreciated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, that was a lot of fantastic share to work from Andy Bolt and Andy Seymour in collaboration with our our render guys like um, Ollie Wright, Bill Pullen. Um, Steve Taylor, uh, Dan Horson, these guys were, you know, absolutely, you know, top of their game, sort of render and shader artists. Um, and, you know, it's only because I think those guys knew each of us so well, worked together for such a long time and were willing to kind of try new techniques, you know, rather than just kind of doing the same thing that people have done for years. So we wanted to make sure we, when we started with the PlayStation 4 hardware, was, you know, take advantage of many, as, as many of the kind of, um, features and um, the powerful hardware behind it so we really kind of pushed ourselves early on uh, but it's definitely something where i look back now and we know so much more about the hardware and we know so much more about different techniques and uh, you know if it could have been remade now uh, man things you could do now <laughs> so now, now you talk about the limitations with like the ps4 and so forth but like how would you end up feeling about with like where the industry is heading with the introduction of more into the VR and the AR stuff? And I would feel like that the, the limitations with those would be drastically different than with the console. Yeah. Well, obviously we worked on um, drive club VR and um, that was a, that was a big challenge getting on that uh, on the piece of hardware. Cause obviously the PlayStation four is a fantastic console and PlayStation VR. I mean, I'm a big advocate of, of VR and I've got a PlayStation VR I play it, you know, quite a lot. But, you know, the, the, unless you're on PlayStation 4 Pro, I don't think you're getting quite the resolution you need all the time. And it's quite clear that it's this the, the step, you know, the first step into VR world. And I can see it being around, you know, as, as a big part of gaming in the future, whether that's VR, AR, you know, some, something that immerses you more than your current, you know, your current sort of 2D technology. I can see it being a big thing. But, yeah, well, I think it's very early days. And I think there's some fantastic games coming out for it. But I think the best is definitely yet to come. Interesting. So, how, so how do you feel about the new with them talking about like the life cycles of these consoles now we're not going to see as many upgrades going forward in the future how's that how do you feel about that from a development standpoint it's tricky really i mean from a point of view like where you've got the xbox one x and the playstation 4 pro as a developer i mean that's fine i mean because the the architecture is essentially the same underneath the software that we're working with is the same the challenge it isn't actually that you know more difficult because we're not implementing different feature sets and we're not having to re-engineer the game to make it work on that hardware. So it's not like a different console to work with. It's it's it's, it's kind of like working a bit with a PC where you've got um, you know different con- configurations. You know where people can run it at different resolutions uh, with different settings, and it's it's very similar to that. And that's quite an established process within development. So it's quite easy to handle now, obviously you know we i don't work for sony or microsoft anymore so i don't get an insight into you know what's coming next in the hardware front or what's going down the line um but if, as long as they you know keep with a similar architecture and don't change you know everything from underneath us too much then it actually will hopefully be quite a, a nice seamless transition into into next gen i'm hoping speaking of the process uh as you were as you were going on about the um, next gen consoles, um, we're also kind of going into a streaming um, kind of era for video games and like movies and TV shows and all that. Um, would that 
kind of impede on the process as well for for making games? Is that a different type of beast altogether? Um, ultimately, it's the same for us as a developer because essentially we're still going to be running the game on some high spec box like a a PC or a PlayStation Four off somewhere in a cluster and we streamed from that device. So we okay. don't have to do anything to actually enable the streaming side. The only thing that worries me as someone who makes racing games predominantly is that the, the latency that gets introduced could be a factor. Now I know, you know, um, the, you know, these encodes and the way that people are dealing with um, streaming is getting better and better. And obviously Google are doing a lot of good things are here in that space. And, yeah. It might it might be fantastic and responsive, but as a developer, it's one of those things. As a racing game, the one thing that you need is that instant response. We do as much as humanly possible to make sure that kind of when you make an input, you get that instant response, that feedback that you need from a racing game to get the feel for the car. And any sort of latency that's introduced between you and that car is a bad thing. So, ruins the experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Racing games might work, but until I've had the opportunity to try a racing game on some sort of streaming platform, I'm not sure how it will work. It might be fantastic, uh, and it might prove me wrong, but I worry about the latency, you know, spoiling that feel, you know, that kind of one-to-one input with you in the car. Okay. So from a development schedule, Paul, this is one of my questions I've always thought from the developer standpoint, is how, how does shows like E3, PAX, Gamescom how do those impact your production schedule? I think, well, in the past, I think um, looking back like 10, 15 years ago, those sort of things were always last minute events and they always disrupted the experience. But now, nowadays development is so much more savvy. We understand that Gamescom, E3 and all these events, they're part of the development schedule now. So whenever you're putting together your plans for your next game, you're factoring in demos, betas, you know, E3. Oh, wow. Uh, announcements. So, everything is, is kind of built into these plans now. So it's no longer a surprise or a last minute demo is needed. It's kind of everything needs to be planned up front because, you know, as when you've got, you know, not just like 10 or 20 people, when you've got 50, 60, 100 plus people working on titles, you can't be reacting to major events and, um, and things like that when you're kind of trying to hit a date and you've got fixed budgets to work with. So, yeah, it's, it's very professional. It's all kind of all budgeted, all planned, and it's kind of like actually, it's just part of development nowadays. So with E3, are you is with you guys having so many you know your new projects? You've got a project you're working on that you can't talk about, although we wish you could. Um, <laughs> are you guys going to be going to E3 this year from a studio perspective? That's a really good question, and that's one I don't honestly know. Um, it's one of those things where. Even though you know we're a studio working on multiple projects, um, I'm very much kind of head down on my projects. Uh, I very rarely actually pop my head up and have a look around to see what else is going on because it's you know the, the focus that you need to you know to have everything pulling in the right direction and you know hitting all your milestones. You need to keep your team kind of focused on on the goal you know or the month to month goal that we work on. So I I honestly don't know. It's a good question. Um, I would, I would hope we'd have some presence at A3 because it's the sort of thing where, you know, we've got um, some some great games in, in development and uh, I hope we get to show them off. So, yeah, uh, no, because I'd like to go. <laughs> but uh, I de- definitely won't get to go this year. They are far, far too busy actually starting to make our game. <laughs> and, and on a personal note, since we're talking about, like, busy schedules and stuff, uh, I know that... 
especially as a game director, you're definitely very busy through the full development of the game. What kind of things do you end up doing like away from work in order to unwind or in order to be able to just kind of de-stress from what's all going on in the development world? Uh, for me, it's a balance of family, games, and work. Um, so, I've, you know, I've, I've got a wife and two kids and, you know, part of that life is, you know, getting out of the house and um, keeping those guys entertained as much as possible. Uh, <laughs> but when it when it's uh, when it's late at night, around now normally, I get to uh, I get to play some games. And uh, as much as I love racing games, and I do try and play all the latest racing games. Um, I do try and kind of switch up my gaming kind of habits away from racing because that's what I'm doing day in day out. Day in day out. So I just try to play as many. As many games as I enjoy, basically, um, without burning out too much. What, what kind of game, what, yeah, what kind of games are those? Like yeah. adventure, RPG? No, it's, it's anything that takes my fancy at any given moment. I've I've gone from um, you know Japanese RPGs to uh, oh, like, right right now, like I'm playing I'm playing a mixture of Destiny Two, uh, yes. Trials, <laughs> Trials, <laughs> yeah, uh, Trials Rising. Um, <laughs> I was playing Super Smash Brothers Ultimate on the Switch. Oh, nice! Uh, Apex Legends on the Xbox One X. Um, so I'm just—I've always kind of playing a, a scatter shot of like five or six games generally, any one time, jumping between them. So uh, I think variety for me is a big thing with games. Just playing as much as I can. Well, you've definitely been playing a lot of indies lately too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of go through, um, I, I guess, moments where it's like right. I just want to play lots of really short experiences, lots of indie experiences, then I'll, I'll go back to all the big AAA blockbusters. Like I've got quite a few lined up now. I want to get, jump into soon, like Resident Evil Two, Devil May Cry Five. Oh yeah, Sekiro, Sekiro coming out in the month, but it's like right, maybe I'll get back into those sort of games soon. Resident Evil Two was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and that that was a big game for me in my childhood as well. Resident Evil One and Two, I absolutely hammered those games back in the PlayStation One. Um, <laughs> It's just finding the time within my kind of gaming schedule, you know, to uh, to play them. It wasn't bad, Paul. It was uh, I did Leon's Quest in six hours. Oh, that's that's yeah, that's pretty good. And that's still going back and forth, running, you know, getting lost and thinking, you know, a puzzle solution and realizing, oh, you forgot something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was about six, six and a half hours. And to, that's the to thing do with games nowadays because there are so many good experiences coming out. You really have to manage your time. So mm-hmm. you've got to look at, well, you know, do I want to do this one 40 or 50 hour experience or do I want to check out, you know, 10 other short games in that time? Right. Oh, and I, I absolutely understand you in terms of gaming with kids and stuff. Cause <laughs> I've got a 20 month old, <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's demanding, but, uh, thankfully he likes Spider-Man. Oh, all games. Cool. So, and he likes playing with dad with his uh, old DualShock 3. That's a DualShock 2. It's DualShock 2? <laughs> yeah, it's a DualShock 2. So, so he's pretending he's playing while you're actually playing. Yes, and he will hit the buttons and everything like he thinks he's playing. And, you know, it's adorable. He, When I come home, he will grab my hand, take me into the office, grab his controller and look up at me. And I'm like, okay, I guess we're playing Wait, Spider-Man. Guys. <laughs> well, my my eldest son, he's uh, just getting to the age now where he can actually start to play games reasonably well. So he's massively into dinosaurs, obsessed with dinosaurs. So um, we actually started playing Monster Hunter World together, where he would initially watch me, then he would start to play a little bit, and now I watch him play. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! 
How is Monster Hunter World? I think it's brilliant. To me, it it harks back actually to Fantasy Star Online back on the Dreamcast in terms of the kind of structure and that kind of repetition and kind of grind loop it's got going on inside it. So, uh, yeah, I think I think it's brilliant. But I think what's, yeah, what's for- best about it is is the dynamic encounters. Um, uh, you know, we're, we've played it together for fifty, maybe sixty hours now, and every time we go on and we go into an encounter chances are something new will happen. Something you've not seen before. Another monster will dive in, start fighting with that monster. Some part of the environment will get destroyed and kind of the consequences, the chain reactions that it can cause are just, you know, it's awesome. It's still fresh, you know, that long into it. Cool. I, I love that you mentioned Fantasy Star because that was my, my jam back on the GameCube. <laughs> and yeah, and I, then I, moving I, to Fantasy Star Universe. I lost track of how many hours I put into Fantasy Star Online 1 and 2 on the Dreamcast it was yeah it's my first online obsession I think and the thing is with the Dreamcast I think it was ahead of its time too Uh, yeah I mean it was it was definitely ahead of its time because you know I was playing on 56k dial-up internet so my ISP would only let me stay connected for one hour maximum so I had to make (laughs) sure oh (laughs) I had to make sure I got my gaming session in within the hour log out before it signed me out automatically. So that was, yeah, that was tough times <laughs> trying to do, you know, all the bosses and stuff in Fantasy Star. So what is your preferred console right now? Honestly, between uh, the Switch, PS4, and uh, Xbox One? Since just hours played at the moment, it's, it's still my PlayStation 4. I think they've got the most exclusive content uh, nice. on there, yeah. you know, that's worth going to. Totally uh, agree. I'm, I'm loving the flexibility of the Switch where, you know, I, I get to play some kind of, you know, some console quality titles you know away from my gaming room so i can get a few hours in here and there throughout the day um but yeah it's my xbox one i guess which is the most neglected um you know i I would like to see you know some more you know first party um exclusives coming out for them to drive me back to that console but you know i have got an x so you know it's it's a powerful piece of kit so you know when multi-platform games come out on it and if they look the best in that console then you know i will lean to them but if it has got multiplayer slant all my friends are generally on PlayStation, so I'll play with them online and that. So with that is, you mentioned the, you know, the exclusives and stuff. What are your favorite exclusives for the PlayStation that keeps you kind of there? Oh, I mean, they've, they've got such a good lineup. I mean, was it last year alone? It was, what, Spider-Man uh, and God of War. Um, you know, I still dip in and uh, play Grand Turismo every now and again as well. Um and I'm trying to think what else. Uh, well, Bloodborne. <laughs> I was that was that, that for me. That's the game of the generation. Still, it's my favorite PlayStation Four game and the, my favorite game I've played in the past five, five or six years. Wow. So, yeah. Oh, nice. I haven't so heard that, Bloodborne in years. Yeah. Oh, that was what three, four years ago. I think it came out. I well, remember. yeah, it would have been because the booth was right next to you guys at E3. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it was like right across. It was <laughs> next door. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I've tried Bloodborne. I just, I've just never been able to get into it. I don't. I mean, but I think that might be because I've never gotten into Dark Souls. Well, that was the weird thing because I, I bounced off Dark Souls initially because I tried to play Dark Souls back on the PlayStation Three and I never actually finished it. Um, but when I when I played Bloodborne, I actually went back, did Dark Souls One, uh, then did Dark Souls Two, and uh, oh you know, wow, I'm a massive fan of the series now. You know and that's why I'm looking forward to Sekiro, even though it's not, a, you know, a, a sequel or even a spiritual successor. It's 
you know, it's just those guys and what they do with those games, I think is brilliant. But uh, it definitely takes that kind of, uh, I don't know, it's a, there's a point in Bloodborne for me where it just all clicked. And that was it. Once it clicked, I was like, I was totally invested. And um, it made me love the rest of the catalogue. How, yes. how far into the game did it take you to hit that click point? It was uh, Gascoigne. As soon as I'd beaten Gascoigne, that was it. Um, okay. That was the second boss. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so that's about, I don't know, three, four hours into the game. So it's, yeah, it's quite an investment of time to not be sure about a game. But, um, you know, after after that four-hour point, it was like, well, the next 100 hours just disappeared. <laughs> yeah, yeah Shariko looks like a r- really interesting game because it does have that, it has that dark Bloodborne, like, uh, tone to it, along with, like, the samurai and, and the adventure. So, uh, yeah, it looks like a really fun game. Mm. Yeah, and I, I do like a challenge every and again. I, I love the games where I can just sit back and relax and, you know, just enjoy the the visuals and the audio. But I also every now and again, I like a really good challenge. You know, something yeah. like you know, especially Dark Souls. <laughs> when you went back to Dark Souls, like man, I can I can't even imagine how many hours you put into that. Right. Yeah, I mean, across the series, I don't I don't even want to think about how many hours I put in now. Across, <laughs> on I mean, I, I, as well. Yeah. yeah, I might have to follow Paul's uh, Paul's lead and maybe start with Bloodborne in order to get I, Dark Souls. Because Dark Souls turned me away from Bloodborne. But, I mean, Bloodborne turned you back and got into Dark Souls. I might have to do that. I'd, I'd still still highly recommend it. Absolutely would. Just, um, you know, know what you're getting into. No, it's not going right. to be easy. I definitely recommend, you know, there's loads of really good guides, uh, kind of beginner's guides, because the game doesn't really give you a helping hand early on. And there's like mm-hmm. four or five key things that if you know those things up front, you'll have a massive leg up to really get you going. Okay. You know, when it comes to like games that are like that go-to, kind of relaxing, look at the visuals and the audios, the order is mine. Oh, the order. That's one game I actually missed out. I never got around to playing that, you know? It I, is. I, I feel like it was a very underrated game. It was, yeah, I agree with Matt. It was such a beautiful, uh, well-put-together game. And uh, story-wise, I, I totally got into it. Ready? Yeah, Ready at Dawn did an amazing job with the visuals. Uh, it was seamless between the cinematics and the yeah. play. The score is amazing. <clears throat> um. And it's definitely one that if you're looking for a game that you can just sit down in a day and kind of play and beat, that's one of them. Uh, I really should do as well. I really should. Because it's one of those, you know, those PlayStation exclusive games that takes full advantage of the hardware. And actually, I actually went out for dinner with the game director at Radio Dawn as well. And uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, he's, wow. he's a really, really, really nice guy. And uh, yeah, I should really just... Uh, to honor uh, you know our brief time together, I should go back. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, what games are you looking forward to that are coming out? Ah, uh, hmm. I think it's quite a packed schedule right now. Obviously, I mentioned Sekiro. Definitely keeping my eye on that. See how that turns out in the next few weeks. Uh, the Division Two, I've kind of got my eye on a little bit. I played the original. I got to the end game and I kind of bounced off it at that point because I didn't think there was much to do afterwards. But quite a lot of yeah. my friends really hyped about the sequel and yeah, that, it's funny you talk about that end game bouncing off of it because jerry and i played a <laughs> ton of division thing. one and we we did the same thing we're like nope the, we're done and then we decided to try and go back to it and 
it's it's good, but it, it it's not the division two. Division two's got so many upgrades on it. Um, yeah. And I was listening to a podcast interview from uh, What's Good Games because uh, Andrew Renee and team went up to the reveal um, the other day up at uh, up in DC. And they were talking about all the research they did to make it a one-to-one recreation of DC. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, th- those guys at Ubisoft, they have massive teams and the amount of resource they've got to put into these games. Um, you know, I'm sure it's going to be a massive, massive undertaking and there's going to be a huge amount of comfort inside there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to, to keep my eye on it but just because, you know, a bunch of my friends are going to jump in and play it, I think, and it's, it's best when played co-op and uh, yeah it, looks, it definitely looks intriguing it's definitely one of those games i think as well where you can actually just relax and play you know you know play that kind of grind loop you know get back you know shoot a looter as people are calling them nowadays you know yeah right yeah i absolutely agree it's always nice to just kind of like kick back crack open a beer talk some crap with you with the guys and just take down some some bad guys taking down over washington dc <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think what else I'm looking forward to. I'm mean, I'm hoping that um, the first season for Apex Legends comes out soon because um, I've kind of rinsed I think as much of the kind of the content I can from you know the game since it launched. Um, you know, as a, as a battle royale game, it's by far my favourite. You know, it's got that fantastic movement and combat with quite a lot of really cool design ideas that keep it fresh from you know PUBG and Fortnite and those games. So I want to see what they do with those seasons and how they're gonna keep it fresh and alive going forwards. Do you uh, think, Paul, from a, a development standpoint, do you think that maybe the focus on Apex Legends might have kind of hurt Anthem a little bit with all the issues that, that Bioware is having with Anthem right now? It's, it's a tricky one, that, really, because obviously I don't know how EA work internally and how they promote and collaborate amongst the teams and marketing side of things. But yeah, it was it was odd for me that you had Anthem with this massive i don't know how long people have known about it and the massive marketing trail from um from like you know, early last year up until the launch this year and um and then you got anthem not anthem sorry apex legends which just comes out of nowhere it's, it's out now go and get it and it was insane to see you know that sort of game come out in the same month as anthem you know um especially when there's so many other games out in you know february february had what metro exodus mm-hmm. crackdown 3 uh, you know, crazy early, you know, yeah. going for early year. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where I can kind of see a lot more game studios take these tactics now, where they won't have these long lead times, and they will just start to drop and announce these titles that come out of nowhere. Um, I think sometimes that's smart. I mean, I think a lot of the things that I think the guys um, over at Respawn said about Apex Legends is that they didn't really want to have to try and explain the game to people over that period of time because it's, it's in the Titanfall universe and people would be going, oh, were the, were the mechs, were these big robots? And, you know, it's oh, people would have been questioning why you're not doing Titanfall 3, you know, why is it a battle royale game? And all they did was put the game out and let the game do the talking. And the game's fantastic. So It's done the talking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Within, what, a week, they had already hit 2 million concurrent players? Insane. Absolutely insane. And- it's doing right now what it took Fortnite all of last year to do. Mm-hmm. And um, so how is that ping mechanic? Cause I've heard so much about it. Um, how is it from a, a gameplay perspective? I, I love it. 
I think it's 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 one of the most inspired mechanics in the game. And obviously it's it's been done in other forms in other games, but this feels like it's the 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 the, the, the refined version of it. What the version that everyone's gonna copy. It's just so intuitive to you know, as you're as you're going around, it's just, it's just point and shoot effectively. And there's a few other little shortcuts you can do inside there to, to mark enemies or do other squad commands and stuff, but it's super simple. And because when you're playing online, you know, not everyone's going to have a microphone connected. Not everyone wants to talk. Not everyone is able to talk all the time if they're late at night. Um, so it's a perfect way to be able to work with a small group of people. I mean, it's one of those things where I think they've tailored it around the fact you're only working with two of us. So you're not like having, you know, massive teams all spamming that kind of that ping channel at any one time. So it, it, it works really well. And most people use it. And that's the thing, you know. Uh, and people tend to use it quite well. Um, and it really aids collaboration. You know, people tend to work together as a team. You know, every now and again, you'll get new people in the game, obviously don't get it, you know, when they first get dropped in. Uh, but I think most people, you know, definitely make good use of it. And I think it's, yeah, I, I expect to see it in a lot more online games. So with Apex Legends, is that something that you would definitely recommend to somebody who doesn't is not really a big fan of, like, the Fortnites and the Battle Royale games? Um, yeah, I think so, because for me, I'm not the biggest fan of Battle Royale. I, I played PUBG on Xbox, and it's okay. Technically, you know, it needs a lot of work, and, you know, the, 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 the pad aiming isn't quite there. And Fortnite, for me, it was interesting, but the combat again is always the crux for me of any shooter that has to feel good like a racing game you know the handling has to feel good or nothing else matters um so you know the shooting always felt a bit spongy and not really for me um you know epic legends feels like a titanfall game you know titanfall 2 was an absolutely fantastic Mm -hmm. first person shooter and that campaign was excellent and the multiplayer i thought was actually really good as well and so they've taken that kind of shooting and movement obviously not one for one because it's not quite as aerobatic as, as the movement in um, Titanfall 2, but you still got that kind of that feeling of how you glide through the environment, slide down the hills. It just feels good to move around the environment. Interesting. Might have to give that a shot because I got to thank yeah. Jerry for getting me into Titanfall. Yeah, because I, 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 I was just about to agree. <laughs> I, I, I played the first one and I was very interested. I thought it had a lot of promise. But I, I think they really blossomed when they came out with two because the campaign, I totally agree, was amazing. And uh, I really enjoyed the the multiplayer. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of those multiplayers that kind of went under the radar a little bit, much like the game itself. You know, I think so. One, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I was so, yeah, so disappointed, really, that it has gone under the radar. And hopefully more people might, might see Apex Legends and realize it's part of the Titanfall universe and then go to check out Titanfall. And go universe. back. Yeah, and go back yeah, to it. It's still worth checking out. I love Titanfall, but I think for me, a lot of that love for Titanfall comes from playing Mech Assault yeah. back in the day. <laughs> so, um, Paul, one question that Theo had for you um, in general was just from a recognition standpoint. Um, Theo, you want to kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, so... Like, I always feel like in most conversations about video games and, like, how we rave about uh, studios, it, it, sten- it tends to be at that high level. It's always the studio as a whole that's primarily getting recognition for the fantastic results of the game. But h- how does the recognition get 
further into more micro to like your your design teams or your development teams, your QA teams or anything like that um, from from communities that are not necessarily fully involved or directly involved with the industry. So you're talking about like how how the rest of the team kind of received the recognition because what there's tellingly what one person at the head of the studio or uh, who right that. yeah uh, I mean it's a tricky one really I mean when I was um, at Evolution you know one of my one of my roles was to kind of inform the team about you know what the conversation is about the game and what people are saying about it and uh, what they love about it and sharing all the cool stories from the communities because. It's one of those things where, you know, most people in dev don't have the time to look at every every forum, every you know Reddit thread, or every every post on Twitter. And if anything, it's kind of a distraction for most of those guys. So mm. we try to always filter all the information through the team and give them all the love that the community is kind of bringing to them. Um, okay. So that, that was always an important thing for me because obviously, you know, when I was at Evolution, a lot of the kind of conversation and you know um, went through me and. Um, either my Twitter channel or, you know, the official Drive Club Twitter channel, for example. Um, but we always tried to make sure that the team, you know, understood and knew everything that was going on and, um, you know, tried to make sure they, they, they felt the love as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Nice. Great. So, Paul, what kind of advice would you give to anybody that's looking at getting into the industry or looks at it and goes, well, you know, God of War you know, all these big title triple A's make all this money. I really want to get in involved in that. What kind of advice would you give to those people that are looking at getting in? Um, well, learn, learn the trade to start off with. It's one of those things where there's now, there are so many tools available to you for free to be able to, 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 to make games and mod games so easily. I mean, when I was back trying to learn how to make games, my first games I did was on, I was typing in code on an Amstrad CPC 464 and it was, you know, it's, it was it was almost impossible. Oh no, it wasn't impossible, but it is a lot more challenging back then. And now, you know, the, the amount of support you have online, you can talk to people to help you out, and you can learn the trade before you get into the trade. You, know, you can make demos, you can make small games without having to spend years and doing them now, because a lot of the tech, the infrastructure, the tools that you need are there. So, you know, if you're coming to an interview and you want a role, you know the you have to be able to demonstrate something. It's no longer good enough just to have a CV to say, these are my skills. You need a portfolio. You need a demo. You need to showcase what you can do. Um, because Kind of you know, like a reel that, for yeah. like, that actors have, like showing all of your work. Yeah, oh, if, yeah if, that's a good comparison. I mean, if you're an artist, you, know, you want that portfolio of, you know, of all the things you've made in, in, you know, 3ds max or, or mayor or substance designer, all these different tools and programs. I want to see them. You know, I want to have the files in hand and be able to inspect them and check them out and see whether you built things correctly. Um, if you're a coder, I want to see some demos, you know, it's, I want to see things running in real time. I want to, I want to have the source code along with it to, to see how you've coded something so we can work out whether or not you've, you've done a good job of it behind the scenes. Um, if you're in QA, uh, that's, that's more challenging because obviously the skills of QA aren't really about how to make a game. It's about how to deconstruct a game, if anything, more than anything else, and trying to break it down. So you know, a lot of the skills actually come from um, 
communication more than anything else, being able to talk with the team, describe the bugs, um, how you put things into Jira or Handsoft and all these different um, third-party pieces of software. And there's so many roles now in gaming now as well. There's, there's obviously this there's production side of things because this team gets bigger, you know, teams get bigger, we need more producers. Uh, there's all the social media side of thing and marketing side now. Teams aren't just, you know, you designers and coders and artists nowadays. It's, you know, mm-hmm. they are teams generally have so many different sort of uh, tailored roles. So there's there's more and more opportunities, which is great now. There, there are so many ways to get into gaming, which is awesome. Wow. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. So, Paul, the, as we wind things down tonight, so we can let you get back to enjoying the last little bit of your evening uh, <laughs> over there in uh, England, is what is your favorite game for game night, whether it's a board game, console game? What is that favorite game for you and your family and friends for game night? Oh, man. Um, that's a challenge. I, I, do, I do play quite a lot of board games because... Uh, we have uh, a bunch of guys uh, who have li- literally rooms full of board games in their houses, and we, we go to their, awesome. their houses and play board games. So, um, a lot of favorite stuff. But I think it has to come back to to console gaming, though, in terms of that game to come back to um, and play with people. But I'm trying to think most recently what it was because you know, for, for me and my friends, it has always been. Uh, it was always the Halo uh, titles. You know, they were the games that always came back to when we hammered them for years. I mean, years to <laughs> get the line together. Nice. But I don't know what it is now. I don't really have one one game I go to nowadays where all my friends go because it, it's so different now, the industry, in terms of, of the console market and what games are available. I just find myself jumping from experience to experience and never really... Um, kind of sticking with one for, for too long, even though like, you know, games as a service now, I think, and developers want you to stick around and play their games for you know, year after year. I don't find myself doing that. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always moving on to something fresh and new, but I'm always looking for new experiences to play, you know, with my friends or with my family. So, yeah, yeah. I don't think there is one thing anymore. I think back in the day, yeah, now, <laughs> I don't know, different. <laughs> so, one last uh, parting uh, thought with you, Paul, is when do we actually get to hear a tease or any information about this little project you've kind of hidden away that you're working on? Uh, I, all I'll say is you won't hear anything this year. Okay. 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 I think that's a pretty good tease. Yeah. Well, well you know, uh, it's, it's the sort of period now where we're very busy, working hard, uh, getting the nuts and bolts of the game all done and um you know it's it's the sort of thing where you know you know games nowadays you can't turn them out in six to twelve months you know they are fully yeah. fleshed out development cycles to project that varies but you know you, it's it's not it it doesn't take uh you know a, a guess you know based upon when i started it slightly mad and you know how long these things take so you know um yeah, be patient. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, we will. We, well, we know the hard know. work that goes in because I, I know that we're certainly, I feel like we're certainly in that day and age where like all the gaming communities and at least 90% of gamers definitely uh, are very thankful for the amount of work that goes into the, the fantastic games that are coming out these days. Yeah, actually, that's, that's one thing that I, I love about the community nowadays. There's so much better uh, educated and well informed about what goes into making the game. Yeah, so totally agree. Because yeah. 
I think I think years uh, years back, I think a lot of pe- a lot of like game fans were a little uh, too uh, not as patient and didn't. Uh, no one really had the knowledge or, or didn't realize how much work it actually takes to get into it. And I think with seeing more of a behind the scenes and seeing how much work it really goes into, I think nowadays people really appreciate the work that goes into it. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things. Even though you know, are working with a super talented team at, at Slightly Mad. You know, those guys have been, <laughs> been working for, you know, they've got decades worth of experience and it's still a challenge. I mean, it's, there's yeah. not, no one day where there aren't fresh challenges, new things to try and explore and do. And, um, you know, nothing stays static. You have to keep pushing yourself in game development. And, you know, there are always going to be new hurdles to jump over. So it's, it's, it's fresh and exciting from that point of view. But, yeah, it, it never gets easier. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know I'll definitely keep an eye on our email because uh, when you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, I was also talking with uh, Nathan over there at Slightly Mad. We're getting on your guys' uh, publisher's mailing list. Uh, so we'll be able to get all that um, information as it comes out um, you know, before the general public. So I'm excited for that opportunity. Um, Especially, I'm, I'm excited that you know Nathan and, and the guys at Slightly Mad allowed you guys you to come on the podcast even um, to join us because this has been um, fantastic. Yeah, I want to give a Nathan is listening. Quick shout out and uh, thanks for letting me do this. It's a fun opportunity. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're really appreciative of you taking the time to to shoot the shit with us a little bit. Yeah, yeah huge treat. Thank you so much. <laughs> so. Uh, once again, Paul, I want to thank you for crashing game night with us for all our listeners out there. Definitely want to say thank you for crashing it with us as well. Uh, if you like what you heard, please absolutely subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Uh, I personally want to say everyone be excellent to each other and stay frosty. Thank you for joining us, my fellow nerds and Theo, Matt, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you guys. We'll see you next time. All right. All right. Cheers. It's been a pleasure.